Think about your life for a few moments. What makes you lay awake at night? Maybe it's broken relationships or busyness or regret. What makes you anxious? Maybe it's uh, your past or maybe it's family conflict or personal struggles. What frustrates you? Could be parenting or work or finances or politics or circumstances that you can't change. What do you fear? Lots of people fear change, failure, rejection, or something bad happening. What do you fear? What overwhelms you? Maybe life overwhelms you, or the responsibilities that you have, or just the pace of life. What are you dependent on? Some of you may be dependent on alcohol, or tobacco, or maybe pornography. Cell phone addiction, that's a thing. What about besetting sins? There are probably certain sins that you find almost irresistible. You resist sometimes, but you you often find yourself failing again and again, and it may feel hopeless. When you think about your life, what difficulties or struggles feel unbeatable? Have you lost hope that God is able to help? Have you lost hope that God can actually move mountains for you? And I think external circumstances can quickly become our focus. Things like school, grades, work, money, politics, family, sports, other people's opinions, performing better, whatever. God, God, change those. But I'm talking more about mountains that need to be moved inside us. The biggest mountains that need to be moved are inside us and inside of others. Do you believe God can move immovable mountains inside you and others? Think about other people. Like you, other believers are struggling against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Your brothers and sisters in Christ have burdens Heavy burdens and deep struggles. What mountains do you want God to move in the hearts and lives of believers whom you love? Have you lost hope that that those mountains can actually be moved? And then what about unbelievers whom you love? They don't know Christ. They don't care about following Christ. They just keep ignoring God and living for themselves. And though their sin is destroying them, they don't care. And it grieves you. You see mountains that need to be moved in them, and they don't see it, and you can't move them. Have you lost confidence that God is able to move mountains for them? And what about Jerusalem church? God God is powerfully working here through the word, the sacraments, and prayer. We need God to continue to grow us and to produce fruit in and through us. What fruit do you want God to produce in and through this church that only God can produce? And I'm not talking about the things that that you want done your way. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the things that God wants done God's way, his way. The kind of fruit that the Bible talks about. What fruit do you long to see God produce in us? 
And do you believe that he'll do it if we ask him and we trust him to do it? I guess the big question is, do we really believe that if we ask God for good things that align with his will, he'll give them to us? Do we really believe that? Do we believe God's promise to give us what we ask in faith and in prayer? Do we believe his promise? I think we all sometimes doubt that our God will actually help us and doubt the usefulness of prayer. Some burdens and struggles, most notably our soul burdens and struggles, seem too big, seem much too big to hope for any real change. They're just massive. We ask God to help, and we ask over and over and over again, and we still fail. So we begin to doubt God's power and we begin to doubt the usefulness of prayer. We get tired of sounding like a broken record. And honestly, our faith in God wavers. Our confidence in God and in prayer falters and fades and we're tempted just to stop believing and to stop praying. We we might ask, but we don't believe and so we don't receive. Might it be that when You pray and you ask, you don't believe, you doubt, and so you don't receive. James 1, 5 through 7 explains this temptation so well. James said, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. God helps those who ask him for help and believe he will help them. He's not going to move mountains for those who don't trust him. We must ask and believe in order to receive. True prayer, it's an exercise of faith. Otherwise, it's empty chatter. Useless chatter. Saints, we will receive what we need from God when we ask in prayer, believing that we'll receive what we ask. I have a very simple point to make. And I hope this simple point just greatly encourages you and reassures you in the gospel. Here's the simple point. Ask, believe, and you will receive. And I'm talking about God's power and grace acting through faith and prayer. Ask, believe, and you will receive. In prayer, ask God for good things that that you need in order to faithfully serve him, in order to love him, and put your trust in him, and you will receive from him. Ask, believe, and you will receive. Can you remember that? Simple point. Now, I looked at this passage this week and had very little idea of what it means. That's interesting for the preacher who has to say something on Sunday. These are perplexing verses, but as I studied, comforting truths started to surface as I understood it better. They began to emerge, and I want to share with you some thoughts that I hope will encourage you and that will deepen your confidence in God and in his promises, and and in prayer. 
When you read Matthew 21, 18 through 22, alongside of Matthew 11, the chronology seems different. If you're like me, I get all mixed up when I'm reading stuff. Like, which came first? It sounds like they're saying this. But, but realize Mark wrote, I think with this account, Mark wrote chronologically, whereas Matthew wrote thematically. Matthew condensed events to accentuate certain truths. So here's the chronology, the best that I can piece it together. Jesus arrived in Bethany on Friday, enjoyed the Sabbath on Saturday with friends, peacefully rode into Jerusalem, looked around the temple, and headed back to Bethany on Sunday, returned to Jerusalem on Monday morning, cursed the fig tree on the way, cleared the temple in judgment of Israel's hypocrisy, returned to Bethany with his disciples, and on Tuesday morning, passed the withered fig tree with his disciples on the way back to Jerusalem and used the dead tree to teach his disciples a lesson about God's judgment of hypocrites. And this all happened within days of the cross. I think Matthew condensed the fig tree cursing and teaching to poignantly connect them to Jesus' judgment of Israel's hypocrisy. So here are a few observations that I hope build our confidence in God and in prayer. First, our king's personhood. I've helped you with alliteration here, all right? Personhood. Verse 18 says, in the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. The Christ became hungry. The Christ is a human being. He knows hunger pains. He knows physical weakness. He knows seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling, walking, sleeping, bathing, bleeding, excreting, and all the rest just like you. He identifies with you in your human weakness. Jesus is one person. The disciples looked at Jesus and they saw one person with two distinct natures, a divine nature and a human nature. One person, two natures. Distinct means Jesus' divine and human natures are not the same, not mingled, not mixed, not blended. They are independent of one another within his person. Neither of his natures can be isolated from his person. Anything that seeks to isolate one of his natures from his person is a false Christ. And while remaining true God, Jesus Christ's humanity became hungry. As true and righteous man, Christ's hunger was part of his humility and suffering to pay for your sins. The the Son of God took on humanity to suffer and die in your place so that you would be saved from God's judgment. Your mediator must be human or you have no mediator. Christ's hunger, oh, it's evidence. It's evidence that Christ is human like you and that he suffered for you in order to save you. Christology or what you believe about Jesus, matters. Be confident in your mediator. With the exception of sin here, folks, Jesus is just like you and me. 
And as our faithful high priest, he is absolutely able to sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Isn't it comforting, brothers and sisters, to know that when we present our requests to God, our God understands quite well our human weakness and struggle. Second, our king's parable. Now, sometimes parables are fictional. Other times, parables are real events used as parables. Jesus actually cursed a fig tree, and it actually withered, and it actually died, and yet Jesus used the event as a parable to teach. Verse 19, and seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it, but only leaves. And he said to it, may no fruit ever come from you again, and the fig tree withered at once. Folks, that's hard to understand. Was Jesus frustrated and taking it out on the poor tree? Our Lord is never capricious. Never. We have to think more carefully than that. Consider these thoughts. Mark wrote that it was not the season for figs, which is a confusing, it it, it adds complexity to it. But I think what he meant was the harvest season for mature and ripe figs. It was earlier in the season when the figs were green and unripe, or even when no leaves were, uh, or figs were there at all. But when a fig tree has leaves, it ought to have immature fruit on it. And immature figs are actually edible, just not as tasty as mature figs. The wayside fig tree had leaves that, that caught Jesus' attention, And the leaves gave the impression of life and fertility and fruit. The problem was the tree had no fruit on it. It was an unproductive, it was a useless tree. Jesus cursed it. Jesus cursed the unfruitful tree. And he did it as a parable to teach his disciples a valuable lesson. Jesus cursed the fig tree, then cleared the temple. The next day, the disciples notice the withered fig tree, and then Jesus uses it to teach them a lesson. The parable of the fig tree connected to the hypocrisy of Israel, the temple corruptions, and Israel's empty worship of God. Israel had the appearance of life, the appearance of being God's covenant people. However, there was much hypocrisy and legalism inside Israel as most Jews rejected the Christ. Most were failing to truly love and to truly serve God, and what Jesus did to the fig tree parallels God's judgment of religious hypocrisy. Now, some Jews absolutely believed in Jesus and received him as the Christ, considered the disciples, and and many others like Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But on the whole, Israel failed. Israel rejected the Christ and persisted in empty, ritualistic, and legalistic religion and worship, all while priding themselves on being God's chosen people. And they would be judged, and they would be condemned for their unbelief and hypocrisy. Leon Morris helpfully expressed it like this, quote, We should understand this story as an acted parable. The fig tree in leaf gave promise of fruit but produced none. The result was that it was accursed. Those who profess to be God's people but live unfruitful lives are warned. 
This will have special relevance to the Jews of Jesus' day who viewed themselves as the chosen people, as those to whom God had committed his law and as the servants of God in a way people of no other nation were. But they were not bringing forth fruit worthy of such a position. End quote. Well said. Israel's special status meant absolutely nothing if their hearts were filled with unbelief and hypocrisy. Calvin noted he intended, however, to present in this tree an outward sign of the end which awaits hypocrites, and at the same time to expose the emptiness and folly of their ostentation, end quote. It's it's like Paul said, having the appearance of godliness looks all great on the outside, but denying its power on the inside, no faith. One source explained, quote, Just as Christ inspected the temple and found it full of corruption instead of devotion to God, so he inspected Israel for fruit and pronounced divine judgment on it. Christ's prophetic curse symbolized the withering of Israel for its formal hypocritical religion. Now, God had actually warned Israel before, uh, long before in the days of Jeremiah in a very similar way. It's striking. Jeremiah prophesied, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. And Jesus, the superlative prophet, cursed a fig tree to illustrate God's judgment on hypocritical Israel and all religious hypocrites. Now, we've heard this warning of judgment before in Matthew. This is not a new concept. He's just bringing it up again. Back in Matthew 3, John the Baptist warned the Pharisees and Sadducees, the elite, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit, is cut down and thrown into the fire. And he was talking about Israel. Later in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus taught about false prophets. And and he said, you will recognize them by their fruits. And then added, so every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. On the whole... Jewish religion and worship was hypocritical and legalistic and there was no fruit. And the withered fig tree was a picture of judgment against religious hypocrisy. Israel had failed. But the true Israel, Jesus the Christ, had arrived and and was loving and serving God As Israel should have. Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the faithful son, the faithful Israel who comes and who bears much fruit. Jesus is the faithful one. Jesus is the covenant keeper. Jesus is what the entire Old Testament points to. Saints, sometimes the tree looks really good, but it's not producing any fruit. Religious people can stay very busy with their religion, but they bear no fruit because they're not united to Christ by true faith. 
There, there are professing Christians inside the visible church who are hypocrites and they're bearing no fruit. And they must be warned for their own good and the good of the entire church. And Jesus is giving us a warning. One source said about the tree, quote, its leaves advertised that it was bearing, but the advertisement was false, end quote. Now think about your life honestly. Think about it in terms of the law. Think about it in terms of the gospel. Think about how people around you experience you. Are people plucking and enjoying delicious fruit from your life, or are they seeing only leaves? Have you ever asked your brothers and sisters in Christ how you might bear fruit for their enjoyment, how you might bear fruit for their delight and their benefit? You may have religious leaves. Question is, do you have any fruit that others are eating and others are enjoying? John the Baptist warned, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So as I think about that, I think ongoing repentance from sin is a fruit that you can bear for the benefit of those around you. Repentance, what a beautiful gift you can give those that you love. When professing Christians go through religious motions and they keep up uh, religious facades, religious appearances, but they refuse to bear the fruit of repentance, it is so troubling. It is so, so painful for the body of Christ. Hypocrisy hurts people, but the fruit of repentance, oh, the fruit of repentance is sweet. The fruit of repentance is so invigorating for a church. And to go through the motions pretending everything is okay while others are concerned because they see no fruit of repentance in your life, well, that's troubling, that's taxing, that's painful for the body of Christ. Don't be that person. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, this warning is not meant to make you anxious. This warning is not meant to produce great doubt and insecurity inside of you. It is meant to warn you, but also to produce greater faith in you, to excite you to humble and dependent prayer, and to produce greater fruit in you. That, that's the end. So please listen carefully. If hearing this... Warning from Jesus leads you to despondency and despair and doubt and not to dependence through faith and prayer. You need to think about whether you're actually believing God or not. Be warned, but also depend on Christ and his grace for your strength. Be warned, but also get on your knees to ask God for help, believing that he'll give it. You won't bear fruit by hearing this warning and doubting God's provision of grace even more. Don't doubt. Hear the warning, ask, believe, and you will receive. Third, our king's power. Our Lord cursed the unfruitful fig tree and it withered to its roots and died. He didn't have an ax along. He had words. That's astonishing and sobering power. And the disciples marveled at Christ's power. Now, the, the disciples heard Jesus curse the tree on Monday morning, 
and saw the withered tree on Tuesday morning. Verse 20 says, When the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? It might be better translated as an exclamation, How the fig tree did wither at once. Either way, the disciples were astonished, blown away at this power, the power of the sovereign Christ. And his sovereign power is also implied in verse 21. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. Folks, that is a very dangerous verse. Very dangerous. So let me ask a few things of the verse. Faith in what? Don't doubt what? Were they to have faith in themselves? Faith in faith? Were they not supposed to doubt themselves? No, they were not to doubt the grace and power of Christ. Jesus would do great things through them, so their faith was to be in Christ alone. Once again, Jesus, and we touched on this earlier in the Matthew series, Jesus spoke hyperbolically or metaphorically to make a point about his power and grace experienced through faith and prayer. Mountains will not literally be uprooted and tossed into the sea. Not going to happen. Don't expect it. But astonishing things would be done by the apostles. Where in Scripture do you see anyone, including Jesus, tossing a mountain into the sea? Nowhere. But where in Scripture do you see God doing mountainous miracles through faith? Quite a few places. Jesus' point was not that fruit trees and mountains and all of creation would respond to the disciples' whims. Jesus called and commissioned the twelve to take the gospel to the world. Daunting task. They would suffer for it. Daunting. And Christ would be with them and Christ would move incredible spiritual mountains through them. They would need his strength. They would need his presence. They would need his power. They would need his favor to endure persecution for the gospel's sake. And, and they would receive his power and they would help. They would receive his help through dependent prayer. Just constant dependence on Christ. Christ promised to work through his disciples' faith to accomplish great things. God ordained and God glorifying things through which Christ would build his church. As apostles, they would do miracles. For example, Peter, he healed a lame man in Acts 3. That's a mountain. What in the world? And they did these great things by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Christ worked through them. See, faith isn't nebulous without a clear object to depend on. For true faith, Christ alone is the object to depend on. The person in whom our confidence and hope are placed. And faith is not an unwritten check. You just fill it in with any amount you want. You just cash it in whenever you want, and it happens for you, and you get it. No, that's not it. Faith is not a bottle that we rub when we want God to fulfill our wishes. Faith is trusting Christ, depending on Christ, being confident in Christ, that he will empower you to do what God calls you to do for his glory. 
Do you believe that God will do great things in your life and in the lives of your loved ones if you ask him with faith? Our faith is often very, very weak, very fragile, very dim, and sometimes we're not really sure if God will give us what we ask. Don't forget that Jesus said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. He was talking, he, he was not, I'm sorry, he was not talking about Everest being thrown into the Mediterranean. Wow, that would be amazing, but very unhelpful to anybody. How would that even work with the world and the earth? I don't know what that would cause, but that's weird. He was talking about salvation from sin and death. God moves mountains by saving sinners and conforming them to Christ. There's a mountain. Many false teachers and their followers, the, the name it and claim it types, twist and misuse verses like these to make the case that if we just have enough faith, if you would just believe enough, then, then God is going to be there for you and he's going to do anything that you ask. It's a blank check, baby. If you just name it, you can claim it. If you believe enough, and they ignore large swaths of Scripture, including God's sovereign purposes in suffering, God's sovereign sovereignty in general, and His purposes, God's decretive will, and they make prayer about satisfying earthly desires, and it cripples and it devastates people. Life is not Minecraft. Life is not the Matrix. Life is not Inception. The Lord's Prayer, the Lord's Prayer teaches us how to pray. The Lord's Prayer gives us boundaries. And sometimes Christian prayers don't sound like the Lord's Prayer. They sound like Christmas lists. Prayer is asking God to do for you what you cannot do for yourself and believing he will do what you ask because it glorifies him and because it is good. It is best for you. So whenever you doubt that prayer is essential, that you ought to be praying. And whenever you doubt that it's worth it to pray, whenever you feel like it's an empty room and you're alone and you're offering prayers to drywall, remember the warning and the power of your king. Fourth, our king's provision. Christ's miracle and Christ's teaching excited his disciples to faith and confidence. As Calvin said, Verses 21 and 22 are essentially Jesus promising his disciples his provision of power and good things. He said, if you have faith and do not doubt, it will happen. Jesus added, and whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if you have faith. And implied in that promise is the provision of the power and grace of Christ. Christ works powerfully through faith-filled prayer. It's like Jesus was telling them, I'm going to provide for you men. I really am. I'm, I, I'm with you. I'm, I'm going to do great things in and through you. I'm, I'm, I'm going to come through for you here. But guys, guys, you need to trust me. You need to depend on me. Little three-year-old Lucy stands at the side of the pool. She can't swim. And her daddy is in the pool with his hands out calling to Lucy, Lucy, jump to daddy. J jump in the pool, I'll catch you. And Lucy jumps to her daddy because she trusts him 
and her wet smile and giggles show everyone around her how glad she is that she trusted her daddy and jumped. Now, I think we struggle in prayer because we doubt that our king will actually provide. Isn't that true? We doubt. Is he going to come through? Mm, maybe, God, if you could do this, but you probably won't. Or maybe we expect our king to provide something different than what we actually need. We should believe that God has the ability, and this is just an example. We should believe that God has the ability to heal us or someone else of cancer. But we ought to realize that he often doesn't, and that's part of his sovereign will. But if, we, if while we struggle through something like cancer, we ask for things, not just healing, okay, ask for that. Believe that he can if he wills, but ask for things like courage, patience, love, joy, endurance, the wherewithal to actually love and serve others while you're the one with the cancer. We ought to fully believe, have absolutely no doubt whatsoever that our God will provide those good things to us in our struggles if we have cancer. And even if we have terminal cancer, we ought to believe that if God wants us to live and serve him, he'll sustain our life. We should not worry. If we die, our time was done, we go to him. If he expects us to live and serve him with whatever we have, he'll keep us alive. It's pretty simple, hard to trust. If you interpret verse 22 as God will give you whatever you desire over and above what God desires, you're tempting yourself with agnosticism and atheism. Because when God doesn't come through by granting your every craving and longing, you'll resent him. And you won't believe passages like this because you're asking for the wrong things and looking for him to work in the wrong ways. It'll push you to, to agnosticism and atheism. You'll begrudge God because you wanted your will, you didn't want his will. And he didn't come through for you, and so, man, this, none of this can be true. What Jesus teaches here excludes selfish requests because selfish requests are not the expression of true faith. You will receive what you need to serve Christ faithfully if you ask for it and believe that you'll receive it from God. Do we know Christ, brothers and sisters, so well that we actually know what we should ask of him? Are we that close to him that we just know our prayers are deep and rich and for the right stuff because we know Christ? Or do we not know him very well and so we're asking for ridiculous things that he's not gonna give because he loves us? God has promised to provide for you. Do you believe him? Do I? And your confidence and assurance is not so much your faith but is rather God's promise. Find your comfort and strength in God's promise, not the strength and worthiness of your faith. Trust God to strengthen your faith. Let the word and sacraments remind you of God's promises. Count on the Holy Spirit working through the word and sacraments and prayer to increase your faith. Mark records Jesus saying, have faith in God. Your confidence as you pray to your God is the promise and power and provision of your God for you. That's your confidence. So last, ask, believe, and you will receive. There's the point. That's what I'm trying to get, get across. Inevitably, brothers and sisters, at least some of us will hear this 
message and this warning and all, all that I'm saying here, and we'll feel pressure and stress and anxiety because you know your faith is weak and you're like, well, then I'm never going to get anything because I'm not believing. And you take this message and you make it into a covenant of works. You'll turn the gospel into law and feel such a burden about it. I know some of you will struggle with that and it'll make you insecure. We're being told not to doubt, but then we doubt. Oh, how we need God's grace. Oh, how we need his spirit to help us with this. And I would encourage you not to focus on your faith. How strong is my faith? Is it strong enough to receive? Am I doing enough? Am I believing enough to make progress in this? I'm such a failure. I'm never going to make any progress. And, and you're looking at you. We love to turn the gospel into a covenant of works, into law. Don't do that. Instead, Focus on the strength and clarity of God's promise to you. God's promise to you. Let that be your bedrock. What has God promised you, his beloved child? Fix your attention there on his promises. Do you remember when Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? He's just so willing to pour out wonderful blessings on you. Could it be that you're not receiving because you're not asking and believing? I think sometimes we look at the mountain and we assume that there's no way this thing's moving. It can't be moved. It won't be moved. And so our prayer for it to be moved is half-hearted and filled with doubt. What would happen if we prayed and believed the mountain would actually move? In Matthew 17, the disciples, they, they couldn't drive the demon out of the, the demon-possessed boy. And so Jesus came in a little bit like, uh, really? All right. And he heals the, the boy. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and asked him, why couldn't we cast it out? Listen to what Jesus taught them. Because of your little faith. For truly, I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Now, that's to the apostles. We got we to gotta watch some of that. Apostles are dead. No more apostles. So here's, here's a loose paraphrase of that. Because you didn't trust and depend on me. If you would trust me just, just a little bit, I would do great things in you. I would do great things for you. I would do great things through you. Trust me, and I will move the mountains for you. That's gospel. That's not a covenant of works. That's received. Just look to him. Calvin said, to have faith in God means to expect and to be fully assured of obtaining from God whatever we need. And Calvin added, faith breaks out immediately into prayer. And penetrates into the treasures of the grace of God, which are held out to us in his word, end quote. Marvelous. Faith is evidenced in persistent prayer. Staying at it. Asking again. Asking again. Keep asking. Keep believing. 
Faith-driven prayer is a key which unlocks the door to the storehouse of God's limitless grace. If you want to make continual withdrawals from his storehouse, from his treasury of his limitless grace, ask, believe, and you will receive. What a promise. What a promise. Here's how the Apostle John described confidence in Christ. He said in 1 John 5, 14 and 15, and this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. That's our confidence in prayer. We might have weak faith, but, but that, Christ is our confidence in prayer. When we ask anything according to God's holy and glorious will, our God hears us and our God grants our request. Prayer is an act of confidence in God. One way you know you have true faith, because I know some of you are sensitive. Do I really know God? Am I really among the elect? Am I, am I saved? One way to know that you have true faith is that you're hopefully and expectantly asking God in prayer for the things that you need. That's evidence. That's fruit. Now, I am honored when my kids ask me uh, to help them with something difficult. Sometimes it might be a little bit like, not right now, but I mean, if it's something significant and they're discouraged or something, and so it just honors me when they ask And if they were frustrated in those moments and tearful, maybe, um, and they asked me for help, I want to give them what I've got. I want to be there and really help them through. Why? Because I adore them. You need to hear the voice of your king saying to you as his beloved, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive. If you have faith, faith in him, dependence on him, looking to him. Another way to say that is, whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive from me if you trust me. What mountains would you like Jesus to move for you, for others, for our church? God has blessed us as a church with so many resources, and God has been working in my mind to just brainstorm some things that we God might do in our church. So I'm working on those and thinking about those. How do we want God to help us use the resources that he gave our church to make you know, an incredible difference in our community and with the people that we love? So here's what we need to do. It's simple. Ask, believe, and you will receive. 